morning. Our message is titled, If You Build It. And uh, uh, I hope that brings to your mind maybe something, if you build it. Um, so one way to start a controversy, even here at church, uh, is to talk about baseball. Uh, so, we're, you know, we're Chicago, uh, and so, you know, we got this thing called the Crosstown Classic, and if I were to ask how many people were Cubs fans, some of you would put your hands up. Uh, put it down, Phil, nobody can see you anyway, so. And, and, and some of the White Sox fans, oh yeah, we got some White Sox fans here, uh, and I suspect there's probably somebody that's just a little different and roots for a totally different team than either one of those. Is that true? Yeah, there's, there's one back there. So, uh, so that would start a controversy. And you know, this time of the year, we think about baseball. A lot of people think about baseball. It's kind of an American tradition, and it's, uh, it's a fun thing for a family to go to a baseball game and watch baseball. Uh, and then there, there's a lot of baseball classic movies that come on at this time of the year. And you remember the one, Field of Dreams? Yeah, Field of Dreams. And Kevin Costner was in that movie. Uh, and there's a famous line in there. He says, if you build it, he will come. And uh, I think we've taken that a little out of context, and I hear people say, if you build it, they will come. But Really, in the movie, it says, if you build it, he will, will come. And so he's out in the middle of Iowa. I know there are people that love Iowa in here. Uh, out in the middle of Iowa, in the middle of nowhere, in the middle of the cornfields, and he decides that he's going to build a ballpark in anticipation of he who will come. And I think in his mind, and, and apparently from the movie, it's all these old famous ball players that are going to come. But... Really what happens at the end of the story is that his deceased father comes and there's a kind of a reconciliation there. They play catch, which is a, you know, kind of a father-son American ideal. And, uh, and then there are crowds of people coming to watch baseball. So it's a, feel, it's a kind of a feel-good fantasy story about fathers, sons, baseball heroes, and, and family. There's another famous line a more potent line about building it. And it's what the Lord Jesus said to his disciples and to us. He said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That's a powerful verse, isn't it? What the Lord is saying that I'm going to build my church. So you got a couple things going here. You got a promise, and here's the promise uh, uh, that that I'm going to build my church, and then the, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And so I hope that brings up a couple of things in your mind. By the way, that's from uh, if you're looking it up, it's Matthew 16 and 18. But uh, you know what? There's another part to that. There's a problem. And the problem is, is that hell is going to be fighting against the church. That's what the Lord is saying. He says the gates of hell will not prevail. So there's this war that we keep talking about, that we're talking about spiritual warfare. 
And that's our premise of, of what we're speaking about this summer. We are at war. We have enemies. Uh, I think you all remember the three enemies that we've talked about. Satan, our flesh, and the world. Those are the enemies that we struggle against. And so Jesus promises that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. And I love that promise. So... Uh, about building his church. But it's not very far into the scriptures. In fact, when you get into the book of Acts, uh, in chapter 8, here's part of a verse, 8-1, and it says, And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church. So the Lord had said there was going to be this, this battle going on. And right away in the book of Acts, not very many years after the Lord walked on the earth, great persecution rises against the church. And it goes on today, even to this day, in our world. But we know that the warfare is more than persecution. That's awful, what's happening uh, to Christians around the world. But it's also our personal battles against the enemy the things that Satan uses to try and hold us down. And you'll recognize these things, I believe, because I think we all struggle with these things. Some of the things that Satan uses against us is guilt. How many of you struggle? Well, you don't even have to put your hands up. How many of you struggle with guilt? And Satan reminds us of things that we've done and, and what we are not. And he wants to uh, help us forget that we're children of the king. And Satan works against us. He brings doubts into our mind often. Well, Lord, if you promise this, how come this is happening? And, you know, I, I, I prayed about my children walking with you, Lord, and I'm not sure that they are. And so we, we struggle with all of these things. And temptation that comes to us. Some temptation comes from our own heart, but there are temptations put to us by, by the world and, and, and through Satan. And so we... We struggle with these things. We struggle with worry. Worry is a huge thing that Satan allows to happen in our minds. And so those are the battles that we're fighting. The war is real. Open warfare on Christians, if you will. But Christ has promised that the church will not, I mean that hell, the gates of hell, will not prevail against the church. I have a good friend, George. George Jambier, uh, he was a painter at Wheaton College, a great student. He's got a doctorate. Uh, he, he's a missionary in Nigeria. He teaches in seminary there. He's written all kinds of books, and he's, uh, he, he's a great man of God. But he lives in the town of Jos, J-O-S, Nigeria. And if you read about Nigeria and the persecution that's going on there, uh, Jos is a town that's in central uh, Nigeria. The northern part is where... Uh, most of the attacks have been, but now they've come to central Nigeria, and just recently they really, uh, they, they, uh, they went after the city, the Christians in Jos. So I, I emailed my buddy, and I said, tell me about spiritual warfare in the town of Jos. This is what he wrote to me. Uh, here's what he said. He said, John 10.10 10 says that the thief, the thief, comes to steal, kill, and destroy. That's a good description of our enemy, isn't it? 
He comes to ki uh, kill, steal, and destroy. And then he said in 2012, a lone wolf terrorist tried to blow up a church during the Sunday services only 300 yards from my house. And the reason I wrote to, to George and asked him these things is I know he has struggled with fear for his own life because of the persecution over there. Here he goes on and he says, I clearly heard the blast and it broke some windows in my neighbor's house. Now I'll finish that story later in the message, but I want you to see <laughs> that the war rages on, the persecution rages on, and, and in our own country, there will be persecution. I, I believe that strongly. I just got an email last night, and this shook me to my core, and it's still, I'm still trying to digest it. Uh, Tom Beatty uh, sent me an email and said that in Kentucky, the men and women that volunteer and go into prisons, um, if they will not preach or teach against the homosexual agenda, they'll lose their privilege of going into those prisons. And I began to, it began to sink into my head. The facilities that we go into are state and federal, and the law now says that we're supposed to support those things. So how is the church gonna be able to go forward with its mission in the prisons? So this is something that I'm going to be praying about, and I put it in front of you, but it's just a picture of where we possibly could be heading in this nation as God's people, the church. So, God in his wisdom and in his providence knew that we would need allies in this war. We talked two weeks ago about our first ally against the enemy, and we said that was the Holy Spirit. And we identified that. And this week, we're talking about another ally, the church. The church is our second ally in the spiritual war that we're in. So how is the church my ally in this spiritual war? First thing I want us to see this morning is the church is a people of prayer and supplication. Understand, in every, I'm four points, it won't be long, but I, I say in every one of them, the church is a people. Why do I say that? Because so many people think that the church is a building. And, you know, my wife would say I was a little bit uh, weird about that with our kids. She's shaking her head, yes. We'd go past the building, and they'd say, oh, that's a pretty church. And I'd say, that's not, that's just a building. That's really not the church. The church is people. The church is Ecclesia, that great word that means the called out ones. We're called out from the world, set apart for God's purposes and for his glory. That's what the church is. The church is a people. We might not even have a building, and we would still be the church. So I just want to make that point. Uh, the church is a people of prayer and supplication. Uh, Jesus, when he was teaching at the temple... In Mark chapter 11 and verse 17, here's what Jesus said. He said, is it not written, and he's talking about in the Old Testament now, he, he's, he's in the temple, and he says to the people there, is it not written in the scriptures, 
My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. Prayer for all the nations. So there's a couple things here, real quickly. First of all, it's prayer. And, you know, I prioritize these things myself. And I said, the, probably to me, the biggest ally that I have in the church is people that are praying. People that are praying. And I've always wanted us to be a house of prayer. And, and I, in some ways, I feel like I've failed in that, in leading us in prayer. And I, I still always ask you to hold me accountable and suggest ways that we can pray. I'm so glad that we prayed for our Ethiopia group this morning as, as they were leaving. But that's the power that we have. And I think, it's a, I think it's one of the most important allies that we have is the prayer of one another in the church. And I think the Lord Jesus uh, would agree with that. So the first way that the church is my and your ally is in this war through prayer. That's the priority. The first thing under prayer is earnest prayer. Actually, the passage that Bill read this morning talked about earnest prayer, and so it jumped out right at me. Uh, and we won't look at that one, but Acts 12.5 talks about earnest prayer for Peter. Peter was in prison, uh, and, and it says that earnest prayer was being made to God by the church. So the word earnest, what does it mean? And you wonder why I define these things? Because it's helpful for us to understand. We can run through this and not grab all of it. Earnest means careful, methodical, persistent, and passionate prayer. Passionate prayer and to God. And so, you know, I look at our church this morning and I say, you know, I say, how are, how are we doing, church, in our prayer? Are our prayers really you know, passionate? Are they, they methodical and careful and persistent? Or do we give up on our prayer? So, so let's ask ourselves, are we a house of prayer? A house of prayer. And you know, when the Lord Jesus said a house of prayer for all the nations, you remember he was in the temple and just shortly after that he turned the tables upside down. But when he said for all the nations, the, the Jewish leaders, that horrified them. Because in their mind, it was just for them. And so I love the fact that we at Indian Creek, we literally are a house of prayer for all the nations because we, we, we love all the nations. And I can see that in each of us and how we send missionaries out and how we pray for people. So ask, are we allies for one another in the world of prayer? And are we passionate about that? Moving on, so earnest prayer. What about the extent of prayer? The Bible has a lot to say about the extent of prayer. Uh, the Bible says pray, pray without ceasing, pray continually in everything by prayer and thanksgiving, make your requests known to God, pray for one another. All through the scriptures, if you were to look it up, God challenges us to prayer. And why is prayer powerful? Why am I honing in so much on prayer? It's because the object of our prayer is God, the God of the universe. He's the object of our prayer. Uh, we, we bend our knee to God, the creator God, the holy God, the righteous God. <laughs> Any other kind of prayer would be meaningless. 
So that's why we have such power in prayer. And it shows faith when we pray. People that don't pray, I'm just going to say this. Where are they in their faith? <laughs> am I a praying person? If I am, that means that I'm relying on God, which means that I have faith in God. So we need to be a people that pray. It shows faith and reliance. And you know what? By the way, <laughs> I started out with Peter being in prison. God sent an angel, and Peter was rescued. So the people prayed earnestly, and God sent an angel and did a miracle and rescued Peter. Read it for yourself in Acts. <laughs> and there's another passage in Acts, and I, and I love this. Acts 4.31 says, talking about the church, and when the church, they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. I thought about that. Wouldn't it be something if we were so passionate in our prayer that God would shake this building? <laughs> and, and, you know, that's not beyond the realm of possibility. And whether he literally shakes the building, he can shake our world through our faith in him and through our prayer. And he's doing that in a lot of ways. So uh, we want to be that kind of a church. <laughs> uh, so remember... I said I'd finish the story about George from Nigeria. So here's what happened. I think it has a lot to do with prayer. I pray for George every, every Thursday, you know. <laughs> That's just my day to pray for George. And George said, this is what happened. Uh, the terrorist ran into a ditch in front of the church. It was a car bomb. And the car was stuck. The car blew up, and there were four people that were killed, and there were several wounded, but most of the lives were, were saved, the people in the church building. And he says the church has rallied around the victims, those that were wounded, and God has been honored. You know, and, and you can say, well, wow, there's some bad things that happened, but my personal prayer and the prayer of a lot of George's friends is, God, would you protect George and would you give him courage in these situations? And God answered that prayer. And I'm thankful that he answered that prayer. And I believe that God answers prayer. And George is safely home now, uh, but he'll be going back uh, soon to Nigeria. We have a prayer answering God. So the primary, the first way that the church is an ally to one another is through prayer and supplication. The second thing I want us to see this morning is the church is a people, a people again, recognize that, who teach the scriptures. <laughs> so the next way the church supports one another as allies is through the word of God. And that's what we're doing this morning. We're, we're building each other up through the word of God. Acts 14, 27 says... And when they arrived, when the church arrived, and, and they gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done. And that's what we do in church. We're declaring what God has done, what God is doing. <laughs> and, and that's what the scriptures do. How many of you love Psalm 19? 
Psalm 19 is an amazing psalm. We're going to turn there, and I'm going to look at just three verses real quickly because it always encourages me and actually blows my mind. The first verse, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. I'm a creation guy. I love creation. I love mountains. I love lakes. I love woods. And when I go there, man, it's just declaring the glory of God to me. And, and I love that. But the psalmist doesn't just stay there. He jumps over to verse <laughs> 7, and he says, not only, and these are my words, not only does creation declare the glory of God, but the law of the Lord is perfect. And now he's talking about the scriptures. Reviving the soul, the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. And it goes on and on. So creation declares God's glory. The, the word of God declares God's glory. And then in the last verse, many of you probably say these words, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. I love that psalm. So <laughs> when we declare the glory of God, we encourage one another. I know you're encouraged by the word of God. I can see it. I know it. And, and it doesn't always take the church. I hope you have your own personal devotions. But when the church is together and they're hearing the word of God, it's a special thing, declaring the word of God. I need encouragement in spiritual warfare. I really do. And so do you. <laughs> so be bold and declare God's glory. Declare God's word. Not only are we declaring the glory of God, but we're teaching the doctrines of the church. <laughs> According to the Apostle Paul, we're to see to it that we're no longer children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. That's from Ephesians 4.14, if you're wondering where that's from. So there are a lot of people, and you may know some, and hopefully we're not them, who are tossed to and fro by all different kinds of teachings that come along. The world is full of different teachings. And that's why the word of God is so important when we encourage one another in this battle that we're in. We need to know the word of God. And we need, you need to be checking out what Dave Heidel's saying or Phil Chapman's saying when somebody's preaching here and make sure that it is the word of God. That's our responsibility. Uh, don't be carried to and fro by what maybe Oprah might say, or uh, all these other people. And I hear people, even preachers that you hear on TV and on the radio, we need to check it out against the Word of God. That's our responsibility. Be a good Berean. And uh, <laughs> it says, rather than be tossed to and fro, it goes on and says, we're to speak the truth. Pastors are to speak the truth. Elders are speaking the truth. God's Word. Teachers should speak God's word, truth. Parents should speak God's word and truth. And one another. Yes, it's your responsibility for one another in this congregation to speak truth to one another from God's word. It's all of our responsibility <laughs> to know this doctrine. And that strengthens us for the battle. So learn God's word. And beyond that, we're to teach the duties 
of Christians. <laughs> Turn in your Bible with me, would you, to 1 Timothy 4. 1 Timothy 4. And, and I want us to look at the duties, teaching the duties of Christians. When we talked about the doctrine, here's what Paul says to Timothy in verses 11 through 13 of 1 Timothy 4. He says, Timothy, command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth. Did you catch that, young people? You can teach the Word of God, too, and don't let anybody despise you for your youth. <laughs> I love that. But set the believers an example. Here it comes. This is the duty part. Set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. <laughs> what a great exhortation from Paul to Timothy. <laughs> uh, we teach the Scriptures by how we live our lives. You know, I could stand here all day and shout the word of God, and then you can look at my life and say, does he live that? Does he live that? So we teach the scriptures through the spoken word, but we teach it by how we live our lives. That's what duty is. So that's a one way that we encourage one another is through uh, living for Christ. Be an example. That encourages Christians. I was at the Illinois Youth Center every week I'm there, so I always have a story. And uh, we had a young man with us. His name is Derek. I call him young. He's not that young, 39, 40, I don't know. And uh, I've been involved in his life since he was 16, so I've had the privilege of seeing him go from gangs, drugs, alcohol, to graduating from Moody Bible Institute, works for Youth for Christ, and... Uh, is, is leading young people to the Lord. So he's going with us now on Thursdays, and that's a blessing. So here we are at the Illinois Youth Center, and Tom, um, the, the, the older man, uh, he, well, I shouldn't call him older, he's a, he's a month or two younger than I am, and uh, uh, he reminds me of that from time to time. And, and so Tom was teaching uh, at the Illinois Youth Center, and there was one young man in, in the group of about 15 young men. And that young man kept giving it to Tom, telling him, you're not teaching the Bible. You're just talking about yourself. You don't have any answers. And, you know, it, it was really difficult. And, and, and Tom, I could see he was getting frustrated and flustered. And so I think he shortened it down. He said, we're going to pray. We're going to close it. And the young guy, Derek, that I just told you about, what a blessing. He stood up and he said, hey, Tom, can I say something? And he got up in front of that group, and he went straight to the scriptures and talked about, uh, you know, he, we were talking about Satan and the angels and why they were thrown out of heaven and what happened there. And he started talking about pride. And he was looking right at that young man who <laughs> was obviously full of pride. And... Uh, and yet the young man was listening to him. And so Derek, through the Spirit of God, through the Word, and through the way that he conducts his life, through his duty, God used him to turn that whole thing upside down. And by the time we were done, 
it had turned into a great discussion, people asking good questions, people reading scriptures. It was such a blessing, and I thought, wow, thank you, Lord. Thank you for this young man, and thank you for the way that he conducted himself at the Illinois Youth Center. And you know what? He encouraged both Tom and myself, showing how to live the Word of God. And he used the Word of God to teach as well. What a, what a blessing that was. So, beyond the church being a people of prayer and supplication and people who teach the scriptures, the church is also a people with spiritual giftedness. <laughs> and some of you are going to say, oh man, I don't, I, this is where I struggle. I don't really even know what my gift is. Well, I think somebody else can tell you probably what your gift is, what God has gifted you with. But uh, we're, you know, we're on the 11, 4, 11 to 13s. This one's from Ephesians. Ephesians 4, 11 to 13. I want us to read that in reference to this giftedness. Ephesians 4, I'm going to start in verse 11. And finish with 13. This is talking about God, and God, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Wow, that's a powerful word. <laughs> so here's what I want us to see. Think about those words, equipping. The church is a place of spiritual giftedness, equipping, building up, attaining unity, maturity. All those things is what, what God does through spiritual giftedness. God gives gifted people to the church so that we can be an effective army in the spiritual war. I thought about the army that I served with in Vietnam. And we talk about a volunteer army, and, and, and it was not a volunteer army in Vietnam. It was a draft army. And uh, the draft army was really, in some ways, a very strong army because it was a very diverse group of people. Poor people, rich people, educated people, uneducated people, people of every uh, race and ethnicity. And our, our army we have today reflects some of that, but not totally, because it's all volunteer. And so I like to think about the church as a very diverse group of people, the, the church universal, the worldwide church, all different colors, all different stripes, all different ethnicities, all different uh, education, all different economic, and, and that's what God gives people, gifted people, to the church, and that's a beautiful thing. <laughs> and, and here's one of the reasons, is it provides structure. Think about it. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, teachers, elders, deacons, leaders. God gives structure to the church. A church without structure is a church that's going to have a lot of problems. That's just the truth of it. And some people love unstructured. You know, we as Americans, we don't like people telling us what to do. We don't like leadership. But I am so thankful that God actually has given us structure 
And believe me, I've bucked against it sometimes in my life. I've been a rebel in some ways in my life. But I am thankful for the church and the leadership that God provides and the structure that he gives us. An unstructured army is an army that's going to be defeated. So one of the reasons that we have this is God provides structure. God is not a God of disorder, according to the scriptures. It says he's a God of peace and a God of order. And the church that is orderly is effective in helping its members in this battle, this warfare, to defeat the enemy. <laughs> Spurgeon talks about a trinity on the enemy side, and he said the enemy trinity is the thing that we keep talking about, the devil, the flesh, and the world. That's the enemy trinity. And we've got God the Father, God the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Praise the Lord for that. So beside providing structure, there's another purpose for this giftedness, and that purpose is called wholeness, wholeness or completeness. I believe that God gives every local church, I want you to think about this for a minute, every local church congregation, I think God gives them the gifts and the gifted people to make that church a complete and a whole entity. So I look around this church, and I see giftedness everywhere, and I see how we pull together as a team and a church. And for where God has us and what he has for us to do, we have everything that we need in this body right now. Now, that doesn't mean we don't want more people. <laughs> we want more people. But I think that's how God works when he talks about the body. Every body has everything it needs to function and, and, and all the tools to effectively honor God and to point to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I'm going to say this. Isn't it interesting, and now I'm talking about Indian Creek, isn't it interesting that for such a time as this, God brought along to our door a man and his family with the gift of evangelism, a passion and a gift for reaching youth and community, administrative skills, <laughs> and an infectious enthusiasm. You know that's not Dave Heidel. <laughs> Phil Chapman and his family. It's interesting to me how God works, and he brings gifts into the body, and, and he provides those things for such a time and a place as he has us right now. So I thank the Lord for that. Each of us, each person in here has God-given God gifts to share. The question is, is, am I sharing my gifts with the church? So the last point, the church is a people who serve one another. <laughs> Galatians 5.13 says, but through love serve one another. You know, it's interesting that in war, when we think about soldiers that are in war, 90% of the troops that are in a war are behind the lines. Their support troops. I was one of those support troops. I wasn't on the front lines. And it's funny, another funny thing to me is I can hardly ever find the other 90% when I talk to uh, veterans. Uh, so sometimes veterans are building up what they did a little more than what it really was. But 90% of us uh, support those people that were on the front lines and actually in the battle. And I think the church is a little bit like that, not totally. We're all in a battle, I understand that. 
But we need one another, is the point. We need one another to function well. I need every one of you, and I hope you need me as well, in order to, to fight the battle, in order to function well. And one-man armies only work on TV and in the movies. And believe me, I'm a guy that loves some, a couple of those one-man armies, you know. Chuck Norris, I'm, I'm a big fan. I hate to, you know, Walker, Texas Ranger. Yeah, you know, every, every time, I'm always wondering, will he get killed this night? You know, he wins every time. Sylvester Stallone, yeah, he's a one-man army. Well, you know what? That only works in the movies. That's not reality. There is no such thing as an army of one. There's no such thing as a church of one. That doesn't work. <laughs> in fact, Lone Ranger Christians are weak. They think they're strong. I don't need anybody, but they're weak because they're not part of the body of Christ. God gave us the body. He gave us the church to strengthen us, one another, for battle. First thing I want you to see under that is unlimited opportunity. This could be a whole sermon. It won't be, because I know we don't want to sit here that long. But, I mean, <laughs> I want to just highlight what God says about serving one another. Listen to these things. There's 20 of them, and you're going, oh my goodness, 20, Dave? Come on. Listen to them. It's going to be 20 bullet points, and I do mean bullet points. Listen to what God says about serving one another in the body of Christ to be allies for one another in the battle. Jesus taught, wash one another's feet. And we could just stop right there. When the Lord got down on his knees and washed the feet of the disciples and stood up and said, learn the lesson, serve one another. Serve one another. He taught, love one another as I have loved you. If he'd have just said, love one another, you know, I'm thinking, oh, okay, but as I have loved you, oh my goodness, how can I love the way that Jesus has loved me? It's powerful. Teaching goes on later and it says, outdo one another in showing honor. Paul wrote that. Outdo one another in showing honor to one another people in the church that drive us crazy and I'm supposed to honor that person and show them honor that's what the Lord says about the body welcome the weak in faith sometimes we put those people down that we think are weak in faith and the Lord says welcome one another do not cause another one to stumble in the church. Can't preach on that, but how many ways do we cause people to stumble by what we say? Bear one another's burdens. Wow. Everybody's got burdens in this room. This is supposed to be a place where I'm bearing your burden and you're helping me to bear mine. That's what we need in the battle. We really need one another. Bear with the failings of the weak. Sometimes when we see other people in the body fail, it makes us feel good because we think maybe we're a little better 
That's not what Christians do. We to bear with the failings of one another and support them in those things and recognize that that could be us. Live in harmony with one another. Not discord, harmony. Think about the church, the churches you've been involved in, I've been involved with. Lord, teach us to live in harmony with one another. Welcome one another, according to the scriptures. Aim for restoration, it says in 1 Thessalonians. Aim for restoration, that's what we do. We want to restore things. Things are broken sometimes. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another, agree with one another, and live in peace. That's all from 1 Thessalonians. This one is the, one of the hardest things, but it's so powerful from Ephesians 4.32. Forgive one another as God in Christ forgave you. Wow. Forgive one another? Easy to say, oh, I forgive you. Think about it. How did... God in Christ forgive you and me. We offended God with our sin, and he reached out and sent his son to die for us. That's the way we're supposed to forgive like that in the body of Christ with one another. Teach and admonish one another. We talked about that with the scriptures. It's our responsibility to do that for one another. It's not just saying pastors and elders do that. Teach and admonish one another with the word of God. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Pastors submit to congregation. Submit to one another. Submission is what Jesus did. Submitted to the Father. Submitted to a death on a cross, submitted to his disciples and served them. Submit to one another. Encourage one another. We all need encouragement. Seek to do good to one another. Exhort one another. Sometimes we need to give somebody a little push. You can do it. You can do it. Stir up one another. This is Hebrews. Stir up one another to love and good works. (laughs) Not neglecting meeting together. That's the church. We need each other. Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. Oh, that's a hard one. Does that mean I should stand up and confess all my sins, every sin to you? I don't think so, but I know that I have people in my life that are Christians that I can confess my sins to, and they pray with me and pray for me. We need that, don't we? I do. We need that with one another. Show hospitality to one another. A dying art in our world, showing hospitality to one another. And above all, this is the umbrella over all of them from 1 Peter, above all, Keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. That's powerful. That's the expectation for one another in the church. The final thing I want to say is (laughs) unity is the power 
That's the power. You know, Christians have got a lot of ideas about how to answer the world about our faith in God through Jesus Christ. You know, 1 Peter 3.15, be ready to give an answer for the hope that lies within you. You know, we talk about apologetics, and I can say that word. Everybody in here understands that. Uh, so what is, the, what is the apologetic? And, and people say, and I was taught, that the main apologetic is the Scripture. And I agree with that. Man, God has promised that his word would not return void. So when somebody asks me something about my hope, I like to tell them something from the Scripture. So that's good. That's good, and we should do that. It also talks about using reason. Uh, our thinking and, and reasoning. Can't you understand that this is why I have hope? Because God does this and he does that? Well, reason, uh, maybe you're good at that. I'm not really good at that. So uh, another way is uh, we, sh we show our faith by our good works. You know, we got to do good things and people will understand why we, we trust God. All those are good things, but this is what Jesus said. Hear what Jesus said about how the world would know us. He says, the world will know us by our love for one another. Does the world look at our church and know that we love one another and know that we belong to Jesus Christ because we love one another? And Jesus prayed, John 17, what we call the high priestly prayer, that we would all be one. He said, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they, the church, may be in us, that we'd all be one, so that the world may believe that you, Father, have sent me when they see us being one. So how do we show our love? We show our love for one another by serving one another. There's real power power in unity that I don't think we've tapped as a church. I don't mean just Indian Creek. I just don't think we've tapped that power. I want to give you one illustration and then close this down. This is a true story of after World War II in Germany. Listen to what happened. Hitler commanded all religious groups to unite so that he could control them. And among the brethren assemblies, half complied, and half refused. Those who went along with that order had a much easier time of it. Those who did not faced harsh persecution. In almost every, every family of those who resisted, someone died in a concentration camp. And when the war was over, feelings of bitterness ran deep between the groups, the two groups and there was a lot of tension. And finally, they decided that the situation had to be healed. I thought about that statement. I love it when a church, somebody in a church says, you know what, this is wrong. We've got to heal this situation. So that somebody decided this needed to change, this tension, this bitterness. So the leaders from each group met at a quiet retreat and for several days, each person spent time in prayer examining his own heart, not the other people, examining his own heart in light of Christ's commands. So the first thing they did, and that's powerful, is get along with God. 
and see what he's got to say about your heart. Don't be thinking about the other person. <laughs> then they came together, it says. And Francis Schaeffer, who told this story, he asked a friend who was there, well, what did you do then when you came together? Here's the phrase. We were just one. We were just one. <laughs> he replied, as they confessed their hostility and bitterness to God and yielded to his control, the Holy Spirit created a spirit of unity among them. Unity. Love filled their hearts and dissolved their hatred. Here's the sentence I want to remember. When love prevails among believers, especially in time of disagreement, it presents to the world an indisputable mark of a true follower of Jesus Christ. You know, may that be our church, not just Indian Creek, but let's be a people that loves one another, that really loves one another, that recognizes how we need to love Christians so that our world can see Christ. That kind of love and unity, as Christ builds his church, makes us strong in spiritual warfare so that even the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the church. Thank you for the body of Christ. Thank you, Lord, for all that you give us, Lord. Father, for prayer, for scripture, for spiritual giftedness, and for serving one another. May we be that church, Lord. Help us to love one another. In Jesus' name.